The Cinematologist Podcast, episode 139. Tyler Taumina, the director of Ham on Rye and the forthcoming Happer's Comet. In this episode, Neil talks to director Tyler Taumina about his latest film, Happer's Comet, which premiered at the 2022 Berlinale and is set for release later this year. The conversation covers Tyler's filmmaking process, his thoughts on cinema, his deeply indie approach to filmmaking, and some of the themes that he keeps returning to in his work. Elsewhere on the show, Neil and Dario try to get to grips with some of those themes. In Dario's words, the crisis of belonging, as well as themes of alienation, and trying to figure out who we are and what we're doing as the pandemic stretches into its third year. Something that Tyler's film beautifully captures and engages with. On with the show. Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, and down the line, of course, is my good friend, Neil Fox. Neil, how are you uh, coping with the world at the moment? Well, that's a big question. Um, it's lovely to see you. It's lovely to talk yeah. to you. Um, that's that's helping <laughs> the chaos <laughs> and carnage of the world. Um, doing okay, hanging in there. It's, yeah, even more stressful than it normally is at this time of the academic year with lots of staff uh, off with covid and, and other illnesses um and yeah our daughter at home uh, also with covid so as if it wasn't stressful enough um but uh, touch wood doing okay and yeah it's nearly easter that's what i keep telling myself it's nearly easter we're nearly there yeah we're nearly there we're i'm, I'm a week away i'm actually again on strike this week so i am um observing that you know, I have two. I have a lot of different conflicting opinions about the strike and how it's being organised, prosecuted. Let's say, but I'm I'm definitely in support of the four fights, uh, as they're they're called. You know, the uh, the pay and the pension casualisation and awareness of diversification and colonisation of the curriculum, that kind of stuff. But yeah, it's it's very been it has been very disruptive to, I think. It's really disruptive to the staff and the students, but it's also kind of like it's being used very tactically by the powers that be, the universities and the government, who actually, I think, want the fight. So this is just going to be ongoing and drawn out. And we've just been reballoted again for further strike action later on in the year. So, um, I mean, I don't know how you feel, but I think the, I think universities are pretty much at a crossroads, right? right now as to what they're for i mean yeah. we are going going to go through a periodic review which means we look at the course and what we're doing and i know there's going to be some pretty significant changes which is in light of um i think a lot of it is in light of, of the the economic and cultural structuring of, of education more broadly but very much what what students are like these days it's been yeah it's post-covid it's been a you know a complete 
reset as to what a, a student comes to university expecting or can deliver themselves yeah for sure for sure yeah i mean i'm a supporter of the four fights um but at, at falmouth we so far have not hit the threshold for um strike action in terms of the amount of people who have responded to the balloting um which you know i think is telling in itself as well um in terms of the union members who probably don't don't feel that way um which is their right and um we, it's interesting here where where i am because we've got a new vc who is you know yeah kind of asking those very questions what is a university for what is falmouth for they seem very aware of the impact of the pandemic and not in a in, in a real way you know that they, they want to have that conversation about what do we do how do we do it what you know what's the point of it um what can we do what should we be doing but yeah 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 yeah, yeah my my worry and my cynic my cynical side says that yeah that there are too many other forces at play that yep. that don't want that conversation because it's it's a it's a philosophical conversation as much as it's anything else and it will it has the power to radically change how universities are currently run and for a lot of people who are not academics and not students they're run fine because they you know they provide jobs and they have processes that people engage with whether they understand them or not and they they keep moving yeah. even if what's actually moving them is is just data that no one understands or needs so yeah i, I think it's it, and it feels like a it feels like a, a a crunch point and it feels like that the student response to the pandemic and the impact of the pandemic yeah. on the students has has led to this crunch point that can't really be avoided because otherwise yeah i think disaster won't be averted it feels similarly to the to the climate crisis in the sense of like unless these conversations are had now it's yeah i mean I, I, disaster awaits i think i, I mean I, I i don't know whether a kind of like um some big explosion will happen like i, I don't know whether you know any universities will go under but i am I'm, I'm pretty certain there will be a sort of slow decline and people will leave and then you know re replacements will be found who will be working on lower grade contracts and all of this kind of stuff and then universities will will more and more fall into this pattern of you know there will be a huge di there will be a huge discrepancy between sort of almost what america has you know an ivy league idea of what a university is and then everything else is seen as su substandard which there's a little bit of that now i think but in, even in individual universities you know you have courses that have great standing and all this kind of stuff yeah but whether they can be protected whether they can be protected because i think yeah i think that a lot of those universities are not a lot of a lot of people probably don't want some universities to to remain i think part of it is trying to get some of those newer you know yeah, uh, yeah almost like a european super league of <laughs> you know yeah, um, yeah, yeah, but yeah yeah interesting times and obviously yeah trying to think about that while just getting to the end of term is, is always is always difficult but we're not here to talk about that completely we're here no, to talk no, no. about movies yeah so indeed so before we get into the main bit is there anything you just wanted to mention that you'd seen that you wanted to, you thought was interesting to note interestingly enough i went to see the uh, the batman um because i had a couple of free tickets and it was like a sunday afternoon and there was it's really funny it is that period where there's not if you've seen a lot it's all done there's a lot that I've seen on online and there was nothing specifically I wanted to see 
at the cinema, but it was like a Sunday afternoon. Should we go? And, and it was like, it was that window. It's a lovely time, is it? Sort of three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. And it, you know it's a three-hour movie. Oh, we'll get out and we'll, then we'll be able to have dinner. It was just like, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. And like, like you say, I think sometimes I do feel bad that, you know, you, you don't see the films that the, the, the kids are all talking about, you know, in this job. You've kind of got to, got to do that. I, I mean, and, and in some ways I'm, I'm more interested in, in going to see something like a, a regeneration of the Batman than I am of, of anything else in, this, in the superhero universe. So, yeah, and I kind of, I, I liked it a lot more than anything superhero-y that I've seen in a long in a long while I must say I thought the the production design element of it the moodiness of of it was really good I like the fact that they they kind of went back to the idea that 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 Batman is, is sort of making his costume and and you know his his car is just a souped up road car it did look pretty pretty souped up let let's say but what was inter- I mean there's lots of interesting elements of it in, in the sense that they didn't it wasn't an origin story, which is interesting to me because a load of I've listened to quite a few podcasts have talked about it being an origin story. And I don't think it is. It he's literally he's fully formed as the Batman, as in he turns up to crime scenes, you know, straight away. There's no sort of going back to that that you know the tired old his parents were shot and therefore he's the Batman and that that kind of thing, which I thought worked. It was like okay. We're in there, and it starts. It essentially starts off as a police procedural, which, which I was like really there for. You know what I mean? I was kind of like, "This is this is really interesting." I mean, you do have to do that thing yeah. where, which you have to do with all superhero movies, but especially ones that want to that that wants want to remain within a kind of realist, not a realist universe, but a, a realist acceptance of what's going on in the script. So you have to sort of dismiss the fact that. You know, a guy dressed as a big bat would not be allowed to wander around a police crime scene, you know, in the real world. And, they, you know, one of the police officers says, really, really, um, Captain, you're going to let him walk around here? You know, and that's it. He says, yeah, this is on me. You know, he, he's going to investigate, right? Um, it's really well cast, I thought. In, in, completely, I think Jeffrey Wright is great. Colin Farrell, under all his makeup, is great. Um, Paul Dano does Paul Dano being kind of, you know, weird and psychotic. Um, and, um, uh, Zoe Kravitz is very good as well. I, I, I didn't, I have to say, I didn't think there was any chemistry at all between Zoe Kravitz and Robert Pattinson as a pair. And then Pattinson is, himself is fine, but he isn't given a lot to do because interestingly, again, another interesting point of the movie is in the costume a lot more than in other Batman movies. You know, in most of the other Batman movies, Bruce Wayne is probably given equal screen time to Batman. Whereas here, it's mostly Batman and a little bit of Bruce Wayne. Um, So he's kind of under the suit and he's trying to effect, you know, effect being Batman in that that sense. So it's... it's it is too it is too long and the two elements of the script don't sit together particularly brilliantly for me. So this pr- whole police procedural element of it and there's a whole kind of gangland, you know, mobster setup and you know how how that plays out then ties in incongruously to Paul Dano's Riddler, who's this, you know, the crazy kind of character who's going to blow up the city type of stuff. And it it is sat together, but it's really, and there's there's a real 
middle section of long exposition, which I had to really force myself to kind of work through, you know what I mean? I almost sort of fell asleep. Um, but then, you know, and the, and the end, and it does have like seven endings. It doesn't know where it wants to end. Um, but I think it really has a, a lot of echoes of Seven, and I went back back and watched Seven, and it reminded me how good Seven is. Seven is just tight, man. It really is a great movie. Um, but I mean, again, just before we came on, I don't want to go on too long about this, but one of the interesting thing is I, uh, things is I went on to listen to a few podcasts because I wanted to hear what people who watch these kinds of movies a lot uh, were saying, and I was just just absolutely dumbfounded and kind of disappointed by the level of critical depth that, uh, that, that that it seems to be the just the normal kind of takes that people have on podcasts about these movies now maybe i'm not listening to the right podcast but you know it, it just tended to be a, a, a variation of either you know oh wasn't robert patson good wasn't zoe kravitz good but no sort of depth as to why. No real explanation of the script, so the movie as a movie. And that's one of the things why I liked about it, that I thought it was, to the extent that these movies can be, self-enclosed enough that I didn't need to be a comic book fan or a fan of other movies. But on these podcasts, that's what they talked about. Oh, it reminded me of the uh, the Keaton movie here or the, you know the Tim Burton version here. It reminded me of Nolan here. Reminded me of other superhero Easter egg moments here and then reminded me of comics here. And it just made me think that this is the level of critical faculty. It's mm. I'm going in and I'm searching for things that I recognize from other places. And therefore, if it deliver those delivers those to me, it's good. And that is a real problem, I think, in, again, in the, 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 the areas that I've listened to reflections on this film. Yeah, I think, and I imagine it's, I don't think it's just that film. You know, I think we'll probably talk about this in the bonus if we talk about the Oscars, um, you know, I don't, I don't know that people know how to watch things. Yeah. Um, and also, and I also think that part of it is, you know, want you know, if you start to say things that are analytical, I won't even yeah. say critical because you know, but analytical, then you are a critic. Yeah. You're not a fan. So, and we know that critics are bad, and the critics don't love movies. So, I don't want to be someone who doesn't love movies. So, I'm just going to say, you know, the good things. And if the things are bad, it's because they're not doing that thing that you're saying they're not referencing other things or they're not referring to the canonical comic you know like um so they're not then it's 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 how they are in relation to things that already exist in that same same world and that i think that is a problem it's certainly a problem for the for just the general cultural life of 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 cinema um interestingly i i haven't seen much recently um even sort of music docs has just been a really really mad time but i did watch woodlands dark and days bewitched which is right. kiela janita's three-hour documentary on folk horror wow yeah uh so kiela janice is a kind is a is a scholar and has written sort of a lot about horror and folk horror uh, and this is a, a documentary that she's made um and you know a bit biased because she found backwards which was a short that i wrote and um produced which was a hp lovecraft adaptation she found that when it played festivals and asked to see it and then she included a clip of it in this film um, oh nice yeah which yeah. is kind of amazing um particularly when you look at what's in there you know like midsommar and wicker man and stuff um so we we, we, we she's, she sent us a copy of the film and, and we watched it in the cinema at work um and 
it's an absolutely brilliant piece of criticism. You know, it's obviously at its length, but it's it's aware. It's kind of it's trying to find themes. It's trying to find a history. It's looking beyond the narrow scope of, you know, the the canon. You know, the Holy Trinity, like Wicker Man and things like that. And it's really trying to say, is this a thing? You know, and what is this thing that is what what is folk horror? And amazing clips, amazing research. You know, really in depth. And it was just really exciting and invigorating to see this, you know, this piece of piece of work that that took, you know, that that, that was a film, you know, that was a film on its, itself. Great, great interviews, great clips, yeah, kind of, and took in and took it in these really interesting places. Like, well, you know, this has elements of folk horror, and like, so a film that she mentioned was, uh, which I know you saw recently, was the Reflecting Skin, the Philip Ridley film you yeah. know and just showed this the clip from the beginning with the kid and the, the cornfield and the doll you know and just like again placing these things in context with other things and creating a conversation and and putting forward an opinion that's critical that can be challenged you know rather than saying yeah, robert yeah, pattinson yeah, yeah. is good you know and i think those two things are connected you know and it, so yeah that that documentary i think it's on shudder it's also on blu-ray oh, it's great. fantastic and it really captures you know both the historic elements of folk horror but also the recent resurgence and why it might be back it's a very political politically mm. aimed and themed you know why are we why are we doing this now it's really really interesting yeah but i, I mean the the reflecting skin by the time this has gone out reflecting skin will have left movie but it was on movie and philip ridley is a really interesting filmmaker that i knew about but i hadn't really seen anything of and yeah, it reminded me of early Malik as much as anything else. You know, sort of Badlands, Days of Heaven mm. stuff. Yeah. Um, again, sure. <laughs> at, the, at the risk of uh, reminding me of what something else is like, you know what I mean, which I've just slagged off before. Um, but it, but it's in dialogue with or in conversation yeah, yeah, with, with, or it's yeah, in a yeah, lineage yeah, yeah. with. It's not just yeah. saying, oh hey, look yeah. at look at this cornfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, what's interesting is I think that the, you know he. I was reading a bit about Ridley, and he's made these three this trilogy of horror movies. And again, you know, we're, we're, I'm not the world's number one horror fan, but maybe he's still he's still around, so maybe we could try and get a hold of him because I'd like to see mm. The Passion of Darkly Noon and Heartless, which I haven't seen. Yeah. Um, because cause Reflecting Skin is just just really, really interesting take on the sort yeah. of vampire um, vampire genre, let's say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Passion of Darkly Noon, that's Brendan Fraser, isn't it? So it's a good time to maybe look yeah, back yeah. at that. Uh, that's a really Absolutely. that was an interesting film for him to make at that time as well. Sure. So yeah, I'd be well up for that. That sounds that sounds cool. great. Cool. So this is um, an episode that you've put together with a, a film and a filmmaker that you've gotten in touch with, and I have to say it's really sort of uh, yeah, it, it twanged a nerve with me, particularly in the last couple of weeks. The effect of watching this this movie, which I thought was great. So why don't you uh, yeah bring us into that? Yeah, will do. Um, so. Yeah, this is uh, an episode where I've interviewed Tyler Taumina, who is an American independent filmmaker. And yeah, weirdly, I, I reached out to his agent because he shares an agent with Amy Simitz, who I love. Ah, great. Um, and I reached out and I tried to get Amy Simitz to do a masterclass for my students. Um, and her agent said she's filming currently, but... Tyler might be interested um and I knew because I'd seen Tyler's first film which was Ham on Rye um yeah, which I, I think that. is a really great well. yeah, yeah. yeah great coming of age movie and a really weird. strange film <laughs> weird yeah but like the good weird 
you yeah. know not like weird for the sake of it just genuinely unsettling and weird um so i was like yeah that that sounds great so so tyler did an interview uh, or did a masterclass for me and we talked a lot about ham on rye and just really got on well i really liked talking to him and just before that i'd seen that his new film happers comet had played berlin and was sort of, sort of going into festivals so i sort of cheekily said you know love to talk to you about that i'd love to see that um yeah and he, he he sent a link and yeah we, we we talked about that and we talked about filmmaking and i think he's a really interesting filmmaker in terms of how he's approaching independent film and his career um and also that what i liked about both the conversations i've had with him including this one is that he thinks about he thinks about his work and he thinks about life and he thinks about theme and how it all fits together and um yeah just kind of refreshing again to what we were talking about this is someone who's who's critically engaged with the pro the process and the art of filmmaking in a really fascinating way i thought so yeah he he came on the pod and we had a really great conversation and yeah, i look forward to talking to you dario about your thoughts on that and the film after after we've heard it great so let's uh, let's get into that now Thanks for joining me today, Tyler. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be talking. So we're mainly going to be talking about your new film, Happer's Comet, which is kind of emerging into the world. Um, it played at Berlin and, yeah, you shared it with me, which was which was really kind. Uh, I'm really excited to to talk about it. It's a, it's a strange film, and I, I mean that as a compliment, Um <laughs> Um, I just wonder if you could just talk about how you conceived it and how you kind of put it together, because I don't imagine there was a traditional script um, or even sort of production process. Hmm. Yeah, this, the story behind this film is, is very much born out of the conditions of the 2020 lockdown period, where I was writing quite a bit with my uh, writing partners on, on Zoom. And it was just it's just a terrible experience to write uh, on Zoom, to write during the pandemic, uh, such an uncertain time. So I just was not creatively fulfilled, and I was obviously very mired by the world conditions as any, anyone else was. But then uh, I, I've had these images in my head for a number of years. I have a, a strange... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? A strange uh, affinity towards uh, the the act of sneaking out of one's household. Don't know why, but <laughs> I, I'm very drawn to it. And I've had this image in my head for quite some time of people doing so on rollerblades, and uh, and rollerblading through the the landscape. Like a, a, like a group of people, like a, almost like a community of people doing so uh, secretly. So I guess a sub a subculture, um, and I've I've just always been uh, attracted to to seeing these dark landscapes lit sparsely by practical lighting sources and people floating through them like ghosts uh, on these rollerblades. I think it's funny and haunting, but also um, it, it, it's, it also speaks to an absurdity that is inconceivable in the, well, in general, but especially in the uh, sort of suffocating 
normality of my hometown. Uh, so with, with these images, I went home to, to New York, to Long Island, where I grew up, and I, I wanted to erect a project just based on loose images like this. Uh, and I did so with a crew of two people and an outline that covered a lot of vignettes and a general arc that they would sort of uh, uh, con consummate all these vignettes in, in, a, in, in one location, which originally was a, a movie theater. Okay. Yeah. How sort of conscious were you at the start of the overall feel of the film? Or was that something that you found on the way? Because it feels very coherent, yeah. even though, like you say, there's yeah. a lot of yeah. different people and a lot of different sequences. Yeah, the subconscious is a funny thing. Uh, I, I thought I, I mean, I, I definitely felt the vibe instantly. I knew what it was. I knew how it felt. That was the guiding light. I remember communicating that to my DP, Jesse Sperling, who was basically the other half of this film. I mean, literally the other half of the crew. It was a little difficult, but eventually we we got on the same wavelength after some test shoots. But I really had this vibe of what the film would be, and I guess at at a deep level, I I knew exactly always what it was going to be. But at a more conscious level, I I was a, I wasn't totally sure because I I was under the impression it was going to be a very dry comedy. Uh, um, I was like, oh, it's going to be so funny. All these things are too funny. We need to dial them down um and I, I had a different title for the film even it was called the holy dance which i think is an amazing title for a movie um and i think it's a great title for a comedy that doesn't have dancing in it and when i watched it i said oh this is absolutely not the holy dance this, this is not funny even this is very sad um so uh, there's this discordance between how i felt the film was going to be and how i directed i knew what i was doing in a sense but I also didn't realize the tone in a sense as well. I don't really, I can't really explain it. Mm, that's <laughs> interesting. Um, the tone certainly seems to come out of the moment that it's made. You know, it feels like it really taps into the feeling of the last couple of years, um, mm. even though it's not about COVID in any, in any direct sense, you know, the, obviously it was made during this time and, um, yeah. If, watching it and i've seen it twice now it's like this it feels like a filmmaker who's kind of seeing this as an opportunity you know like not just to tell a very direct story but a chance to do something which is which has some real limitations but kind of working within those limitations um you know so how, how much of it was a case of just thinking okay i'm gonna go and do this or we're gonna do this like the, the two of us um and i'm gonna sort of push push the parameters of what's possible on a practical level as far as they can go well we really were up against extreme limitations this is not like we, we can conceive of the covid period as now too but yeah. if you really remember what the lockdown phase was like it was very very different than <laughs> today thank god and it was it was extremely difficult to make this movie. I mean, uh, where I'm from in Long Island, people generally don't take COVID very seriously. And even still, it was very hard to make the movie then during that time. Uh, it, it was a movie born out of who is around, who, whose house can we go in, who's going to let us in their house, um, which businesses are going to let us go in there, and uh, who... who 
who's going to cancel day of happened many times. I've never dealt with so many actors canceling day of and having to get another actor that same day. Um, so it, it, it's the type of movie where the, there's, there, there's no production design. It's whatever we can get, even if it's not great. Whoever we can get, even if they're not the best actor, and we have to find out how we're, we're going to honor them. So the, the whole thing is, 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 is born by these very, very narrow confines, which kind of push it into the documentary space, in my opinion, because these are people playing themselves in their own houses at a time when alienation was at a height. A height. But I have to say, I probably would have made the movie like this without COVID as well. Because I, I I I feel these themes of alienation very deeply. Yeah, and I definitely want to come back to that if it's okay, because I think it, there's such a unique energy in the film uh, because of the locations and the and and the cast. Um, it's interesting you sort of say that about the documentary feel um, because of those things. It reminded me, and you, you mentioned this filmmaker the last time we spoke, which was Simon Liang's uh, Rizzi. Or days, um, which is a film I absolutely love. He's a filmmaker I love, and also yeah. kind of a peach upon where a Seth calls work. Um, were, are they kind of acknowledged influences? You know, uh, what what were the kind of films that you sort of saw this in the same universe as, in terms of the kind of experience that would, would you would hope an audience would have with it? For sure, they are. Such <laughs> influences. I, 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 I get a little embarrassed with this film about the influences because um, they, I, I think they're very prevalent, uh, more so than other projects I've worked on, for better or for worse. Um, I, I think Simon si Lang, I've always enjoyed how his films are about the separation of people and the isolation and, 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 and uh, uh, reconciling the disconnect that we have with our, our world around us. So that's very clearly a, a, a guiding force of this film, aside from the aesthetic parallels one can make between yeah. his films and this one. But I think one of the filmmakers I do like to acknowledge as a patron saint in this movie um, is a little less embarrassing for me, is Aki Karasmaki. Okay, um, lovely. That was a big... Maybe I was a little more in comedy mode when I was, or mindset when I was thinking of him. But 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 the way that he uses light and artifice and pace, yeah. and and the subjects even, you know, he's a, he's a huge influence. Oh yeah, that's really interesting. I think yeah, I, certainly in terms of like you say, because you mentioned like the production design, but it's such a beautifully shot film. You know. Um, Thank you. Thank you very much. It, you know, like every at every turn, it's you can feel the i think you feel the situation because you know when it was made but you certainly don't see it on screen you certainly see this this very deliberate very measured construction of of place so that's really interesting because he is definitely a filmmaker who yeah sort of creates a mood um and yeah that was one of the things i wanted to mention on which is that you've got these they're they're fictional places even though they're real locations and they're kind of characters, even though they're real people, a lot of your family particularly are kind of, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. And I just, I just, I, I find it such a, yeah, such a special energy in the film because of that. Um, what were the kind of the conversations that you had with your DP and your actors about, 
you know what you were trying to do because they're not really doing a lot they're not really acting per se you're just sort of capturing these moments of time mm. with people you know mm. um how did you kind of get them on board with both how the film was going to look and the pace and what they were being asked to do yeah it's really funny with the actors there's such a there's such a gap between their understanding of the film and mine <laughs> i uh this we were actually shooting this film throughout the time where Hamon Rai was coming out in theaters in the U.S. and thus getting its first uh, like sort of official press releases, mm. uh, uh, you know, um, uh, write-ups and reviews, which was a very very overwhelming time for me. I mean, luckily it was a very positive experience, but um, emotionally it was it was just incredibly difficult. But uh, and I was also turning 30 at the time of the shoot, too, uh, during the pandemic breakup and everything. It was, it was a very intense time. Uh, but, but one of the good parts about Hamon Rai coming out is, is all those write-ups. People were really excited. So they would just be in the film no matter what. <laughs> a lot of my family and friends, oh, yeah, great, let's do it. Otherwise, they, I think they would have done it, maybe. But, but there might have been a little less loyalty, a little less, you know, from, from some of the, the more peripheral uh, people in my community, not my... Yeah, not my yeah. But anyway, so so they were just down to be in it. Um, it's funny how little they <laughs> understood of what the project was. Like, for example, my 91-year-old cancerous great-aunt just got over COVID, no issue. She's in the film. She's very strong. She's the one, she's the old woman who, who uh, is alone in her home, which is her home. And we, sh we get there, and she's like, oh, I'm going to be in the film? And I was like, I, I literally told you this. <laughs> and what do I got to do? So we shoot her, you know, taking her phone call or whatever the scene is. And then, okay, we're going to do it from another angle. She's like, I, but I just did it. Like, why do I have to, why, why do, I have to do it again? Like, she, she didn't even understand the process of filmmaking. In fact, she took a five-minute phone call talking about horses as we were, ride, as we were rolling her. Um, and then I told her, uh, and then she sh we shoot the whole thing, and then I said, oh, you know, thanks for being in it. So it's a really kind of a heavy and sad scene. And she was just like, what, what was so sad about it? I, this is just me on the phone and taking a nap in my kitchen. Like, th 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 she just did not understand what this film was in any way. Um, and then my mom is in the film, and she's in the scene, which is a spoiler, so plug your ears if you don't like spoilers. But she's in the scene where we, we consider it the cornfield orgy scene. She has no idea that that's the scene she's in. She comes to the cornfield. She looks through the cornfield stalks. She goes home. Uh, she doesn't know the context. Uh, and I'm really curious how she's going to react to it <laughs> when, when she, when she uh, gets to that. So in, in other words, I, I wasn't trying to tell my actors, like, this is a film about alienation. This is a film about the sadness. I, I wasn't trying to make any statements like that at all to them. It was just simply like, what are we going to do? You're going to push that car. You're pushing the car. That, that, then they come, they push the car. I had a great time. And then they leave. <laughs> um, so this sort of alien, uh, alienating them from the, the, the piece is, is, is also how I worked with Helmon Rai, where, where the, the cast was not allowed to read the script past their own pages. I, mm. I, I think that if you're making a film about alienation, alienating your, your talents from the project is a great uh, tool. Yeah. Uh, as as far as Jesse and I, we 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 mainly had which the DP Jesse Sperling. We mainly had a, a sort of a movie reference based, uh, and 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 painters and um and photographers. We we were referencing art a lot to just to understand the, the lighting. Like I I learned so much about lighting, uh, because I was 
gaffing and gripping. Uh, you know, I would tell him this is how it's going to feel. And he would say, okay, you set that light up. You set that up. Um, so uh, I don't know. A lot of our conversations were, were about uh, how our hard light sources would, would um, interact with the space. And, and um, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I don't, it wasn't very cerebral thing i guess after the reference points were established between us yeah no it's just interesting i think because it was such a close quarters production uh which i guess hamon rye was as well you know you're you're making these you know very intimate independent films uh, at the moment um and jesse's directing something this year i wanted to just sort of because i wanted to ask you about your sort of company you sort of mentioned sort of writing partners on zoom you seem to have a a very sort of collective approach to things um and uh yeah, it's sort of you feel like you're part of, sort of building your own community of filmmakers, um, making, yeah, really yeah. interesting independent work. Well, thank you. Yeah, I I definitely am part of a, a a larger group of of people who, without them, I wouldn't be talking to you right now for sure. Um, Jess, Jesse is 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 a part of that crew. In fact, he um, he shot my first short film called Wildflies which is, uh, you can watch it on Vimeo. I, it's not, it was never released publicly because I don't have the licensing to the music, but it's uh, it's there for you to watch. But anyway, so some of the people in this crew are Carson Lund, who is the DP of Ham on Rye, and I'm actually producing his first feature called Ephis, which is a baseball movie in October. Um, and we also work with uh, John Davies. We, we He shot and I produced his first feature film, Topology of Sirens which is just such a beautiful movie. Um, it's it, it was a little bit shafted by the timing of COVID, whereas Hamon Rai benefited the timing of COVID because we had the festival window just before COVID. He had the festival window during it with his film, so it really was a, a detriment to, to the film's run at this point. But it's playing at Sarasota next month. Um, and that film is, is amazing. It, it, it's, it, it's pretty masterful, to be honest with you. Um, so I'm very excited about all the work we're doing, and I really do think that um, we, we, we see ourselves as, as trying to occupy a space in independent cinema that has not been occupied in, in a long time, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is a kind of straying away from the uh, naturalism of, of the mumblecore and post-mumblecore and arthouse realism movements, which I'm a fan of, but uh, my true heart is in is in uh you know 30s and 40s hollywood mm-hmm. and 50s and um yeah yeah that's really interesting i think there's definitely a circian feel to happer's comet um that's, that's amazing of... I, I, thank you uh, yeah. wow <laughs> um, but also yeah the weird kind of european and yeah sort of yeah east asian um and probably middle eastern yeah. as well in terms of kiristami you know there's the the, the work is not necessarily Although it's weird because it feels very American, but it's it's not. You know, there's right. you know there, there's a different sensibility at play, and I think it's really exciting to hear that because I think so much of independent film in the UK and in the states is 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 geared towards a stepping stone of the big thing, and not that you you guys don't want that, but that you know you found such value and meaning and you know interesting work in a in that truly independent space which is just mm-hmm. it's just really exciting i think thank you yeah so i, I forgot to mention that our, our collective is called omnis films it's just the company that we, we we made for these films um which includes a lot more people than the ones i mentioned 
but but I, I think one of the through lines between our work is that we we are really obsessed with the American landscape and how it's played on our psyche and uh, and whatnot. But we are obsessed. That's like the content of the film. But the form is very is very uh, minded and and yes, European. 60s and 70s art house films and east asian slow cinema and things like this yeah i think then I, I made the same note when i watched ham on right and this which was haunted americana i called it um which sort of film, you know so you talk a lot about the kind of the, the themes of alienation that sit in both um and you sort of mentioned about kind of having an interest in it you know like was was this the theme of what you were working on when COVID hit, you know, or did you start working on Happer's Comet and then realize, oh, I'm I'm dealing in the same things again? <laughs> um, actually, I was writing something that I'm just now potentially finishing at the beginning of the lockdown, which is totally different. Um, it's not even an American uh, landscape film, but I, I, I'm interested in making a film that is, is incredibly warm and inviting with no uh sort of ironic edge to it no subversive edge to it um but yes i i i well also with happer's comment the way that i conceived of it was this kind of suburban subversion thing uh that i thought was very funny but when i went back to my hometown i think there's a lot of sadness there that was sort of inescapable um I mean, that's my relationship with it anyway. I mean, I love where I grew up. I love the people there. I'm not trying to knock it. But there is, I mean, just like any anyone leaving the, the place of their youth and returning, there is always going to be a sadness involved. Um, so I think that was going to creep up into it yeah. either way. And it's hard, to, like, again, it's hard to not make a film that's sad under the conditions that you're shooting in. You know, you're having to shoot people on their own <laughs> because of you yeah. know and that just just that's that true. spending time with people that's on their true. own is and knowing that's that they're on true. they've been on their own and then you're yeah. saying you know like it, it it feels very lonely you know and it's i so think that... funny it's <laughs> sorry continue i i i have a joke thing that i'm gonna say okay um yeah no i just it it, it it feels lonely because you that that's what we've we've become used to in the last couple of years is 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 that isolation yeah. you know um but then you realize that because of where these people are in terms of their work or their their home, you know, that this is a this extends back. You know, it's not we 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 feel that this has been this has been the direction of travel for so many people for so many years. And COVID just really, yes, really kind of exacerbated sure. that. I agree. I think it's an exacerbator of what of our condition already, um, for sure, for sure. That's why these images have already been with me before COVID hit. But but an, another thing I wanted to say was that um, one time I was talking to a few friends and we were imagining looking into a stranger's window and we were trying to think of the activity that they would do that would be the least sad as a voyeur to look upon. And basically what we, <laughs> what we decided in that night is, is almost anything they do is sad. They're watching <laughs> TV. They're doing the dishes. If you're looking at someone in their home, just them, there's just going to be a, uh, I don't know, maybe at night, especially. Yeah. Um, so that, I don't know what that says about us or about mm. if anyone else agrees, if they feel that way as well. 
No, that's interesting. Yeah, because obviously, you know, with that, it's not really a spoiler, but it's it's a nighttime movie, um, which does double the sadness, you know, because I think there's a sense of like, this is our leisure time. This is the time that we get to explore and do stuff. And it's like, what is there to do? What are we doing? Yeah, <laughs> that's, sure. yeah. I've never thought. But also about think that. about it. if you're if you're awake in the middle of the night and you're not working, you're automatically set against the grain. Mm. There's either you have an issue of insomnia. Or you're just a, a total outlier and you don't have the same sleeping schedule as other people. Um, so there, there is a natural transgression built into being awake mm. in the middle of the night uh, if you're not working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think as well that the nighttime thing gave it such a, an eerie stillness. You know, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the sound design. Um which is just fantastic, but also kind of again, yeah, just heightens this this sense of loneliness. And even though these people sort of sort of brush up against each other, sort of geographically, there's no until the end. Um, there's no there's no real connection. There's no real sense of community, even though they are technically a community. And and the sound design really really heightens that that sense. Mm. Yeah, the, the the sound design. So so we did not have a uh, sound on set recorded. Not not one bit of audio was recorded on set. It was entirely done within one month of post production. was I was also sound designing and editing the assembly cut. So I was just building it. I, I couldn't really do. You, I couldn't really edit the scene without the sound. Like it, 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 you can't gauge a scene without the sound design for a film like this. Yeah. The, the, it, it's it's as much as part of the image as the image. So um, I was building it mainly through like YouTube sound effects, mainly through like um, I, I rarely foleyed. I obviously had to foley some roller skating sounds, some leaves, things like that. Um, but mostly I was trying to find the most cartoonish sounds possible to, to put this in a, in a sort of um, unnatural impressionistic space. Um, and I think the sounds are, as you mentioned, a, un a unifier uh, of, of, of these disparate episodes depicted in this in this film because uh, a lot of these sounds are some of the only communal fabric i mean if you think of, if you look at this film the only things that really uh stitch together these uh, isolated points on this grid are sounds of bugs mm -hmm. and dogs and cars that pass by and the music that plays in them just things that are kind of uh uh float, floating around space and the train, of course, the sound of this this train that that seems to circle and circumnavigate um, without discretion this neighborhood, and of course, finally, the the police. Mm. The police are a unifying factor as well in their presence in the film. So I, I think that the sound was it was very important for me to be able to stitch together two separate uh, vistas, two separate frames. Um, it was the only unifying factor between these disparate frames. It was really it was the sound. Hmm. When we talked before, I brought up uh, Lynch, <laughs> um, yeah. who's the kind of you know the ur figure of haunted Americana. Um, yeah, and uh, I know you sort of said before it wasn't necessarily, you know, uh, specific or you know sort of foregrounded influence, and then. I, I, the, the start of Happer's comment, there's this image, and I'm like, wow, that's Blue Velvet sort of <laughs> all over with the sound, you know. And then hearing you talk about the sound and the way that the sound is the 
the beating heart of of the work in terms of allowing us to to stitch like you say stitch all this stuff together um are you willing to admit that you're the natural heir to to lynch <laughs> um you know i actually returned to that movie wildflies not that long ago uh for some uh, some work related reason and i realized holy shit the lynch influence here is so annoying it's so obvious um, but it's only peppered in and yeah. in hamon rye it's pretty foundational and it's actually very direct i mean there we were literally shooting pickups for that movie for like a year or two and uh, those pickups coincided with Twin, Twin Peaks: The Return, so we would watch them, and then we would shoot. And, and some of them are so. Some of these scenes, maybe one in particular, are so indebted to that show <laughs> that yes, it's undeniable. This movie, I was not thinking about him at all. <laughs> uh, I guess it's subconscious at this point. And I know that the next two movies I have, um, well, out of three on the on the docket. Two of them are just so not Lynch that you can't. No one will be able to even say that at all, and okay. they'll see the other parts of me. But one of them, you're going to hear that again. Challenge sure. accepted. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Very um, funny. Uh, I just wanted to touch back on the the police presence um, mm. because, yeah, it's 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 really unsettling. You know, and I watched it the first time and it was unsettling, and then I watched it again last night, and I was like, "Why is this so unsettling?" And I think it's it's because we don't. Well, it might be a bit of a spoiler. We don't see them. You know, we mm -hmm. they they're not. We don't know who they are, but it's it's almost like it's the symbolic presence. You know, the power mm -hmm. is in exactly the symbol is, yeah. rather mm -hmm. than the, the the human beings who might be. Um, well. Yeah. Well, th there is a shot, the last shot. I don't know if this is communicated to everybody. And again, if you don't like spoilers, don't, don't listen. Uh, but there's the last shot is of a, a boat in, in, a, in the river. And it says Bay, Bay Constable. That's a police boat mm. in this river. This, I've, I grew up on that river. That is, I actually didn't even realize there was a police boat circling there because I grew up across the street from the river and I, I, never, I don't have a direct access to it. But that, that is pure symbol. That yeah. there, there is no crime in that river. <laughs> There's no crime in my hometown, really, except yeah. for opioid use and, and speeding, uh, going t 10 miles per hour over the speed limit, if that's uh, considered a crime. Um, so it, 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 it is purely symbolic, the, the, the fetishism, actually, of, of the police in, in my, uh, in, in my uh, hometown community. It, this is a Blue Lives Matter place that, mm -hmm. that i that i grew up in well i mean it wasn't when i grew up and now it is um so it, it is very loaded and mm -hmm. and and a part of the, the police thing is as it's obviously very open for interpretation but but uh, i see it as these people are afforded their isolation due to to um this sort of uh this presence mm. yeah and I, for me there's a kind of chicken and egg thing with that and the technology you know that that sort of runs through the film in terms of you know are these people lonely because they're they're, they're just on their phone all the time or are they you know on their phone all the time because they're lonely and, and you know and similarly with this this idea you know like what's the police's role at this in a time like this when mm -hmm. you know <laughs> but making sure people are staying in and if they're if they're out it's yeah. because they're not 
they're yeah. not aware of what's going on you know is that a crime or is that something you know is that something else and what happens when the police mm -hmm. become involved in patrolling this space and what does it make people feel like when they're just going out for a rollerblade i think it, it's it just raises so many questions that are yeah. really pertinent to where we are now but it's such an interesting way that it's not kind of hammered home i i i want to say that maybe this is not obvious for people in their experience but in my hometown if you're in a neighborhood at night like if you were walking around a neighborhood at two in the morning and a police car passed by it would be a thing you'd be like even if it doesn't matter what color your skin is uh, i mean probably matters if, if, if you're not white more but even if you are white um y you're you feel like an intruder mm. so if you were on rollerblades you would feel all sorts of uh at odds with the world around you um but but i wanted to also comment on one thing you said about the, the fact that you can't see them um uh, one thing I didn't realize going into this film, but I, I realized it upon watching the cuts, was that the, the relationship with the, the, the gays is so, uh, is so in interesting because it, it seems to be in the presence of the police or the surveillance cameras or the people just kind of uh, spying on one another, uh, even through the cornfield. Uh, it, it seems to be almost a way in which one can gain power over another. It's like the very easy read on it. Uh, but at the same time, it also seems like the only way one can reach out to one another as well. So there's this interesting kind of uh, duality in the gaze that I realized watching this movie that, it, it, yes, it's a, yes, it's a way that we sort of establish protection and for ourselves and dominance over others but it's also a way that we connect with others mm. which is fucking insane yeah yeah so that that kind of blew my mind watching this movie. yeah that's really interesting yes we're all, so much of where we look is guided and it's not always that's, that's uh, good malevolent you know like it's just it's the way of things a lot of the time it's yeah um the the i don't really want to talk too much about the cornfield because i think it's such a nice it's nice but it does kind of symbolize in a in a very sort of direct way to ham on rye where this strangeness but this strangeness feels rooted in a you know a lived and understood experience goes somewhere else you know um it feels felt very much part of that again a haunted americana you know i think of all the american sci-fi movies that have these cornfields mm -hmm. where these strange beings emerge or are you know are found um and yeah that it it's such a strange thing that it, it feels like the only place they can have connection is in this in this space you know and it's mm -hmm. a clandestine space and it's mm -hmm. it's a natural space but it doesn't feel yeah. you know it yeah. sort of feels manufactured and it feels managed in a way which sort of makes yeah, it, yeah. i mean it is it's man-made those those lines are they're, they're straight lines yeah. it's true i never think of, i never thought about that they're not natural <laughs> wow wow yeah, you, uh, so I, I could speak a little bit about this cornfield space for sure. Um, for one, shooting in there was, <laughs> was very, very surreal. Shooting in the middle of a cornfield, which is very far from all roads, in the middle of the night with only a few people and this large, large towering light mm -hmm. that is on like a maybe a 15, 20 foot tripod. Or not tripod, a C stand. I don't know. <laughs> I'm forgetting now what these things are called. Um, uh, powered by this generator that's kind of like uh, humming in this field it, it is it was so weird i was actually tripping out at one point thinking like this is 
This is very odd. Um, but what I like about the cornfield so much, and I, I, I found myself very drawn to it as a location for other films, I've, I've, I've been writing it quite a bit, is that it, it reminds me of, and this is not a direct influence, This is I don't think this is playing, with, but when I, when I saw this movie, I realized, oh, this is kind of what I'm interested in, is this post-Tenebrous Lux, uh, where uh, they're in this, like, what is it, like a spa or like a, like a like a workout room or yeah. a locker room yeah, yeah. where there's like fog everywhere and haze yeah yeah and they're doing all this all, all this sexual activity in there i think that's how i remember it and i i think this is this is very important be, for me because it, it resonated with me so much to think of these spaces where we can have shared anonymity mm. and that's what i think that this um cornfield offers you it offers you privacy but but there's a grid of private enclaves where you can kind of yeah be Ten, ten uh, t- run tangent to another uh, someone, and, and and admittedly, there's there's it's got to be shame. There's got to be shame involved if you're gonna if you're if you're opting for this sort of um, uh, secrecy. Yeah. So so it's 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 a shared shame space. I think. Now, it's not just a children of the corn scary space, which it is too. Yeah. Yeah. No, that feeds in, but I, I think that shame is such a such a powerful word in that context. Because, like you say, we've 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 seen the lengths that they they've had they have to go to you know physical lengths you know we see them in their home mm-hmm. spaces or around yeah. there and yeah. they can't there's no you know they've got the police patrolling and even when they're on their own and that there's a sense that we're watching or someone's watching and it becomes because we can't really see in the cornfield yeah it becomes the only space which is again telling in terms of how far people have to go to be themselves <laughs> um contemporarily yeah. which is yeah yeah that's 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 a very powerful statement right there. Yeah. A couple more before we wrap up. One is about um, yeah. kind of in line with this, which is about the train. Mm. That then we spend time on the train, but it's a model train. Is that, is that too much of a spoiler? It, it's not a model train. Um, uh, it, it feels it's, so. It's just like. It's it yeah. It's not the same. I'll just say this: it's not the same camera. <laughs> it's not the same camera. It's not the same country. It's not the same world. It's it's <laughs> it's it's gra- grafted in and and plays mm. impressionistically for that reason. Mm. But the train, the train is uh, that's another one that I really have to figure out what's why I care so much about these trains. Mm. And in my film that I'm I'm hopefully going to be producing this year, Christmas Eve Miller's Point, the the train is a is a very important facet of that film yeah. we definitely um, feel I it so. i don't think it needs to be explained but it's felt and then there is a sequence where we're on the train which felt very i just want to explain the context though of the train in my, this town because mm-hmm. it might be very specific okay. that uh, it might be important to say but I, basically um the town that i grew up in is is next to a place called king's park which was um a psychiatric center it was literally just a psychiatric center, like a really creepy one. Like really, really, it looks like a haunted uh, uh, group of buildings. And basically the community was built around this psychiatric center to, to, to incentivize people to, I guess, work there or live there. Like, basically that that's like the starting point of this forested development. Uh, and then all these towns obviously bloomed around it and became... Uh, they were all developed to be basically commuter towns for New York City. 
so basically my hometown is uh, uh, it exists so that people could just get to New York City there's no communal space in the town there's no like parks people go to hang out at uh, that there's no place for 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 um for gatherings yeah. basically the, the, even the how and I really depicts this even the um the parking lots that's like the closest thing you're gonna get to like a space where where there's could be um a, a, a shared opportunity mm. uh, so this commuter train that kind of moves in and out of it is is, is this it has this loaded strange presence to one take you away from your home and two kind of I don't want to say acknowledge that your, your your town is like a subordinate town, but it it sort of is like that. Yeah. So uh, I think these are the reasons why I'm so drawn to the train. Yeah, fascinating. Um, yeah, thanks for thanks for indulging that because I was just like, it's such a strange thing. Um, I just wanted to end with the the kind of the nice note that um, you put at the start of the film. Um, there's a great there's a great collection of Kira Starmi's sort of interviews and sort of teachings where he says like his dream is to have a film where there's one credit page and it's just it lists everybody that worked on it you know like no hierarchies and like everyone made this film um and uh, i've always loved that idea um and i did it for a short um during lockdown actually a weird one um but then i saw at the start of the film like produced by my family um Mm -hmm. and i just really loved it you know i love that that's the acknowledgement is up front you know and it sort of sets you it sets you into this into the space of the film because often families mm-hmm. are thanked on the end because they there's often mm-hmm. often an unpaid contribution mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that the people around us put into making films you know um and uh, yeah sort of seeing mm-hmm. it seeing it up front was again just a nice reminder of this is someone who who's kind of truly thinking about independent film and thinking that actually you know this is this film is made in a certain way and we're going to honor it we're not going to pretend that it's it's made in a way that people think films are made you know um so yeah i just wondered like just wanted to talk a little bit about the experience of working with your family on on a film that yeah is is going to go out into the world in a way that you know i think just i just sorry just to sort of but you know like when people sort of talk about making films it's often like before they make the breakthrough film they talk about all these short films and other films where people sort of came in and you know this is a film that played berlin and is going to play other festivals is going to get released and your family's right up there as being sort of central to the making of it you know so yeah just wanted to sort of end thinking about that really in terms of making a film Mm. with your family that is not a short that's you know this is you've had a breakthrough film and you've made this very special wonderful film with these people yeah, well, well, first I just want to say that um, I, especially now that I'm really brushing up with like the Hollywood industry and apparatus, uh, seeing any success with Happer's Comet, I've, I've gotten my fair share of people who really made me feel like, oh, wow, I, I, I've affirmed, right? Um, it's, I really do want to constantly come back to uh, making small, no-budget personal films, kind of like how Kiarostami said, just to film with the um, materials that you could fit in your trunk. That's which, 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 admittedly, we, we needed the whole car for this one. <laughs> <laughs> two, two cars even. Um, but uh, 
yes, I, 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 there's such a beauty in doing this. I want to, even if I make these multi-million dollar films, which I might make, um, I've, I still want to continue making films like this. It's, it's so important. It's so, I, I see it sort of as an exercise, which kind of makes it strange mm. to, to show to the world your exercises. But uh, speaking of family, um, I, I moved back to my hometown for four months uh, to make this film during lockdown, partially because my roommate uh, in Los Angeles was going to move in with his girlfriend during lockdown. So I had to make a decision. Do I bring in another roommate if I don't know during this time when we're going to be forced to live with each other? Like, hell no. Do I live by myself during this time where I'm going through a breakup and uh, I can't see anyone? Like, that sounds horrible. Hmm. So it just fell into place for me to go back and live with my family, the five of us, my two siblings, my parents, and the dogs for the first time since I was a teenager. So it was a very special chapter. And the fact that we could all get together, talk about, okay, what location can we use? Oh, that person's good. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to be in it. Cool. Oh, can you, can you, Dad, can you hold this hose and go over the car windshield every minute like a sprinkler would? My dad doing that. I sitting in, you know, it, it, it was very special. Mm-hmm. It was very special. And I, I, I say it was such a great deal of pride that I was able to make a film with my family, people who do not have any care about art cinema in any way um open-minded to them and for the context of me should i say uh but um <laughs> yeah it, it's very special to bring bring in people who who don't have any uh stake or interest or even compatibility with that world to it, it's it's to me it's just very special yeah oh so it's so nice to hear because it doesn't feel like an exercise you know, it feels like a, oh, cool. it feels like, a, you know, um, it just, I think it's a really wonderful piece of work. And yeah, it's another reminder that f- films can be made hundreds of different ways, you know, um, and they could be special and meaningful and, and, and thought provoking um, and challenging, you know, um, it's a reminder that the- you, you ever see, you ever see five for Ozu? I don't know if we're like short on time right now. Yeah. You ever see five for Ozu? Uh, no, I've not seen five for Ozu. This is a Kiarostami film that is is so. Or did you ever see, see Seagull's Eggs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was called. Yeah, it's 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 basically like five of those. Okay, great. Oh, it's just such a reminder that. And when you watch Five for Ozu, you you leave the room after wherever you are, and you see more than you ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> you see your eyes are open again. It's crazy. Cool. Well, I felt similarly watching Happer's Comet. Um, oh, that's just the biggest compliment you know, I, 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 thank you uh, I'm a yeah I'm a big admirer of your work um, and I hope you keep making thanks. all sorts of work um, as you go through right on thanks for talking to me today appreciate it so much Neil thank you
thank you, Tyler, for the the conversation. And thanks to Adam Kirsch as well for the introduction originally and, and sort of setting up the, the original chance to talk to Tyler. I really enjoy talking to him and I hope that the listeners uh, enjoyed that. But uh, yeah, Dario, what did you make of uh, the conversation? And you've seen Happer's Comet as well, so we can get to talk about yep. that, which is exciting. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, but I really enjoyed it in that way that it's not kind of obvious and sort of oh yeah that was that was fun or the script was good or I sat down and really when I realized what it was I saw oh, I, I sort of kind of went oh I need to be in a in a sort of physical and mental space here so the lights went off I got right in front of the tv the volume went up just so I could and I want to watch again with earphones on having heard some of the things he said about the sound and that kind of thing because I did realize it needed what what you know I'm calling sort of a deep listening to a film um, that really, really helps. But yeah, just just a fascinating kind of abstract, weird collection of images and moods and tones um, that kind of come together in a way that I, you know, was it accidental? It, it, not not accidental in the way that I mean haphazard, but you know. I'm, I'm sure when you sit in the editing booth, he had a kind of clear picture of, and he says this in the interview, that this is going to go here, 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 and we're going to end up here. But then you're never going to really know what the effect of that is going to be for an audience, are you, until it until it happens. It might be, oh, well, this has just not worked kind of thing. But it, it definitely does work in the terms that that I think it sets out to achieve, as, he, as, uh, as Tyler was sort of talking about. I mean, interesting that question of when is a lockdown film not a lockdown film um and in some senses this isn't a lockdown film in that it's not about lockdown but it has a lockdown sensibility you know and i, I want to talk a little bit about alienation sort of later on perhaps um because all films really you know especially you know most films are subject to the conditions and resources that happen to be available to you so in that sense every film is you know defined by the environment there's only you know huge films with big budgets that can create a production designed world from scratch most films are just being made with what's around you so you know just because it's locked down it's still the conditions that are available at that at that time but that sense of you know um loneliness and discrepancy between the, the the world that we observe and the world that is behind what we observe or the, the the narratives we create about the world that we see is really interesting and i thought that sense of of the facade that everyone has a secret life that we don't really know is is a really interesting thing for me anyway and i think the idea that we never really know what's going on is something that's just captured beautifully here and it's all it's done in in a kind of the aesthetic tone of the movie, the 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 camera angles, the positions, the movements, the the, the subtle zooms and and pans here and there, the sound resonances, we get a glimpse into that parallel universe that exists. As I say, alongside the stories that we just tell ourselves about how the world is, right? Which I think is is great. You know, something like the Twilight Zone does that on a really obvious way. Do you know what I mean? It's that's on the nose. Whereas this isn't on the nose. This is enigmatic and abstract, right? Um, and you know, obviously, the Lynch um, comparison is there. That that kind of cognitive doorway to an America that's 
behind the curtains. Um, and I think particularly the the the, the framing of characters in space mm. and the weird the the making weird of the ordinary, like the guy just counting the money and the 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 geezer just just sort of hoovering with his earphones on just become weird for a reason that it's very difficult to fathom but it's all in the in the in the shooting and the sound obviously um and I, you know just before you come back in i mean interestingly that the the influences of we're as ethical i could see i mean the charismatic one i thought oh right that's that's kind of interesting i can sort of see it on the weirdness level but i think charismatic is much more you know script orientated in his his weirdness you know um but I saw I saw a lot of uh, Kelly Reichardt in the stillness, you know, and and like with her, obviously there's there's more dialogue, but but just sort of the the, the stillness of environments I thought was, was was a bit sort of Kelly Reichardt, and you know at the end it just sort of went into into sort of early sci-fi again with the cornfields, you know that that cornfield aesthetic was 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 very obvious, um, but. Yeah, what it does, all of that it does really well. And I just love how the coherence does sort of emerge towards the end of the movie. Mm. And, and it pays off if you give it the attention that, that is required, let's say, in, with, with a movie of this. So, yeah, I really, I really liked it. And I thought, yeah, yeah the, his sensibility was really interesting as well because he came, to, he came across as quite down to earth as a, as a filmmaker you know, he's, he, he understands what he's trying to do, but he, he's putting it in terms, I think, that are very, very sort of straightforward and accessible. And that's not a criticism. It just means that, wow, the level of depth in the work is, he's got a grasp of it in a, in, in, he's, he's definitely got a, a clear grasp of what what he's doing and he, he can articulate that, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, no, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so pleased that, that you, you, you got stuff, you got that from it, you know, really interesting interesting to hear you talk about it um and yeah i think i feel very similar i, I love the kelly reichardt and the twilight zone you know kind of references i think they are absolutely yeah sort of spot on and yeah kind of reminder of yeah just what what's at play because he's not he's not he's not he's not making it like any of those filmmakers but obviously it's just no. like you say able to able to just be in communion with 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 those those things in the way those filmmakers are with their own their own universe of influence so um yeah and yeah so you, you mentioned before i'm curious to hear what because you said about you know what one of the things that really struck you was the sense of alienation and the question of a sort of modern contemporary alienation so do you want to just sort of elaborate on that a bit yeah i mean it's like i i was asking myself you mean you were talking in the interview about alienation and and like it's a word that's sort of bandied around from from what, and I was thinking, what are we alienated from? Uh, you know, and I, again, you know, alienation has lots of kind of connotations and denotations that are related to, say, academic um, disciplines, let's say, right? But I suppose it's it's kind of like that. In the last few years, we, we talk a lot about the alienation from our environment and. And also the, the, the alienation from um, contexts of belonging, if that makes sense, you know, whether they're institutional contexts like the workplace, you know, it's like now, like the workplace now suddenly has a, a, a sort of connotation of a place of social interaction, you know, more than it did before 
before the the COVID pandemic because it's kind of like that idea of oh you know you know now we what why should we go back to work oh we should go back to work because these spontaneous moments of interaction and communication occur which you don't get on Zoom which is true but it's kind of like it's trying to make a case of belonging for the workplace again to make it relevant in an era where it's become irrelevant so it's funny how i think in, we're living through a world world where our attachments and our modes of communication have have disrupted the ways that we belong to things and therefore alienation is a more complex um category of responses i think than perhaps we we talked about it before you know and you can you can you can think about that that sense of you know we talked about in 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 talking about the students you know they come into the classroom and they don't talk to each other they tweet on their phones and they don't know it seems a lot of them don't know how to communicate anymore that so are they alienate it seems that there is some sort of level of alienation from the very idea of of being in concert with other people without this without this filtering system right and i think you know that that watching the film and the tone of alienation that that it it creates as an experience i think is that idea that we are all operating under the under under just the perceptions of what other people's relationship to their spaces and times and places are so therefore, it's kind of like we look at that and, and the, what the film is giving us, ah, oh, is this, this is kind of weird. This is not what you think it is. So I'm now alienated from, you know, um, an American small town experience or, um, you know, uh, somebody working in a shop now is, is not somebody that I can kind of um, understand what their relationship to me is in any way real or given way through this film you know through this watching of this film or what it means to be have a family in a, in, in an american small town because you you were, you were talking about that in the interview again and and you know it's not obvious that this is about his family but clearly now thinking about why he's made the film it's kind of like a sense of oh what 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 is my who is who are my family what is my relationship to them and i just think it it chimes with, and again, I'm, I'm, the reason I'm stuttering and hesitating, I was trying, I'm trying to do that thing of thinking through it on the fly, which is very difficult. Um, but it is that it captures that mood that we're all in, in that our, our notions of belonging are, are, are kind of being questioned in ways that we, we, we hadn't expected, I don't think, because we'd already figured out in our minds what that belonging was. Like, say, for example, the family, you know, it, it seems incredible that during COVID, you know, you have kids who are at home all the time and parents are moaning about their kids being at home, right? And I haven't got children, so I don't feel like I have the right to say this. So you can, you know, you can come back on it. But it's like, like, and because I haven't got children, I've got a bit of distance. I'm like, Really? You, how can you do how can you do that and it's because like the, the the whole process of the institution of of the school and the family and the home the the tr the trifecta of that had a very clear construction but now it doesn't so uh, that, that so does that mean then that oh suddenly you know my relationship from my kids is now different to 
what it was before. And this is what I mean by the, the idea of alienation is something that I think has been re-complicated, let's say. I'm sorry if that was a massive ramble, but that's, you know, I'm try, trying to work it through, you know. Well, that's the joy of it is listening to you try and work it through. <laughs> no, I think, I think there's, there's, a, there's just there's a lot there, isn't there? Which is great. Um, um, and I think, yeah, it's where to start um, with that. I think the 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 point you sort of made about yeah kind of you know that we we say alienation and it's almost a given as if what uh, what does that mean but it's actually more complicated i think is a really interesting one you know um i think like a lot of things you know and, and I, I i think you know one of the thinking back on the film is that yeah it's sort of presenting these things which are the the normal life of or the normal interior life of people but in a way that yeah because of the time we spend with them and because of the way that the, the sort of the camera as the sort of the pov moves through the film is it's sort of almost yeah kind of taking an alienated stance because it doesn't understand it and it doesn't want to spend the time or it doesn't have the time to to engage with it you know which i think is and i think the police kind of moving around that space sort of accentuates that because I, I feel that a lot of the time as well. It's like, you know, and it, largely to do with sort of social media and sort of, you know, whatever the discourse is, you know, but there's a sense of if you don't feel alienated, whatever that means, then you're not really engaged, you know, like you, you're constantly being told how to be. So, you, you know, we're always told we're all alienated, you know, and we're all sad our kids are at home rather than being at school. And it's like, well, what if I don't feel like that? you know and yeah, things yeah, move yeah, very yeah. quickly so you end up on another layer of quote-unquote alienation because it's like well you're telling me what that is i don't know that you know what that is um and i don't know why i should you know like i don't know why i should feel that way about my job sometimes or you know like there's such a there's such a sense of how you should feel about things you know be that the oscars you know or whatever like like this is how you must feel and it's like well what if i don't feel like that and then I move away from the screen that's telling me to feel like that and suddenly the the environment that I'm in feels different because you know I'm questioning it in a way that I wasn't before and that feels again not a product of the pandemic but certainly sort of exacerbated by it in a in a yeah a kind of a worrying way um but the beauty of this movie is that in seeing that the aesthetic and the having that doorway in as i said that sort of parallel universe to the 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 story that you tell yourself about a, a situation is you're giving a, a a different psychological entrance to it i feel less alienated in watching it you know what i mean by watching it because i've got a view on the process and the, the aesthetic of alienation whereas mm. like say for example you can go and watch a big special effects movie and i'm completely alienated from it yeah 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 in yeah. in, in you know what I mean? No, and that's where alienation comes in. Or say, for example, I I can be, I feel alienated from the institution of the university and the way that it, it, it organizes itself. And I have to get through that alienated feeling to the point of being in a room with students mm. and trying to fight off their alienation from their all of their experiences to, to, to force a, a situation where there is some some kind of community or communication that that we can sh where something is shared 
Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, that's really interesting, and uh, I, I like the way you put that. Yeah, because it, it, it is a film that really rewards the experience of sitting with the idea of alienation and different ideas of alienation in a way that's not trying to tell you what it is <laughs> or how to solve it or you know even make a political point about what causes it fundamentally but like mm. this is a thing and this is you know it's a, like you say invites you into the experience of engaging with your own sense of self with it and also understanding others you know in in really kind of fascinating ways that are yeah very cinematic and very i think very emotive in in terms of the the way that the form is is, is sort of yeah creating sort of feeling throughout so yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But also it's a it's a crisis of belonging isn't it just to, mm. just to sort of round that off yeah. it's like you know everybody's searching for being a belong belonging to um some kind of circle of connection mm. but in today's culture it's it's it, they're nar it's narrower and narrower mm. you know you can you can there is there, the idea of political identity. Let's say you know if you're if you're black or gay or any kind of identity that you want to associate yourself with. These are the, the saying saying one thing means means myriad other things to other people, and then there are other intersecting identities that you may belong to that might be to do with uh, religion or nation or you know what I mean. Where I mean, we're in in many ways we're play, we're seeing a war playing out over the, the the question of belonging mm, yeah you know what i mean yeah and, and it's it's, yeah. It, it, it's a really problematic kind of place that we found ourselves in now where we're grasping for it but you know it, it's melting away yeah as we grasp in a sense yeah no absolutely and it's interesting to see the film in that light and and and, and sort of think about the narrative element of these individuals doing something which they have a sort of private shame or or kind of think they're the only people doing and realizing through the film that outside in the in the world there are other individuals doing the same thing feeling the same things but they they don't know about it because of the barriers that are between that knowing you know and it is that kind of political yeah, 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 yeah. identity thing of like I'm you can't think you're not in my experience so you couldn't possibly get it and you wouldn't you know you you have no frame of reference but it's actually like you know in in this film a lot of people want to go rollerblading at night <laughs> you know but they their paths exactly. don't cross yeah, you know yeah. because they think it's them mm. you know and at that really base level that's a really interesting to think about in terms of where we are isn't it like you say where you know we could belong if we just thought about or made a made a step or made a bridge but there are so many things stopping that understanding of each other on a common ground because of the individual things that are not like the other person that we can't find what's common yeah well it's just taken on another level of of, of depth there i think well, just in that conversation it, yeah i mean and to be honest it's going to lead into what we're going to talk about on the bonus mm. isn't it because it's kind of like we we, we are going to talk about the oscars believe it or not <laughs> uh, for the bonus uh to break the habit of a lifetime but i think you know the event itself, I, I, we don't want to do sort of take a take, you know, a take on the event in, and what it means very specifically. But I think there are interesting things about the reactions to that, which feed into what we're talking about here. And that, in you know, that sense that, that, that so many reactions online to what happened at the, at the Oscars do smack of this sense of people trying to forge their position 
You know what I mean? Which is this kind of grasp to, I want to belong to this opinion group, let's say, or this, and that opinion group correlates to the, these kinds of people in in our minds. Do you know what I mean? So it's yeah, yeah, yeah. it's really fascinating that. So maybe we can, yeah, that's something we can kind of talk talk about in relation to that event. Because I think there is a, weirdly, there seems to be a, a correlation that, that comes out of that conversation yeah no i think i think i think i think you found one with that yeah really interesting exploration of the film and uh and and tyler's interview so yeah i think we'll i think we'll head over to the bonus now if that works with you dario yeah yeah let's do that just just to say well done to the uh for for the episode and uh yeah it was a great thanks thanks very much to, to tyler for for doing it i look forward to seeing you know what what comes next for him really yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, glad you like the film and uh, and hope all of our listeners uh, get to see it. Um, it should be at festivals uh, near near them over the course of the year and then released. So keep your eyes peeled. And if you haven't seen Ham on Rye, then definitely go back. That's available to rent in various places. So yeah, thanks to thanks to Tyler and thanks to our listeners. Um, we will see you at some point in the very near future with another episode. But for now, this has been the Cinematologist podcast. Thanks for listening.